Welcome to the Addy Hour, where we talk brain science, mental health, faith, culture, and social justice. Having attended one of Dr. Addy's town halls, I can tell you that it's vital information for anyone living in America right now. It was the first time in a very, very long time where I felt like all of me could show up, each parts of my identity. I'm your host, Dr. Nee Addy. My friend, Dr. Nee Addy, is such a unique person who is both scientifically astute, understands the human soul and the mind. At the same time, he has compassion and empathy for the masses. He's been nothing but a blessing to my congregations and my friends. It was the first time I felt like it was safe to talk about issues that are usually not talked about, like mental health and faith and wrestling with your identity. By the end, I walked out feeling so much more validated and hopeful. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Addy Hour. It's, it's hard for me to believe this is actually episode 31. Um, so we've had a lot of great conversations over this last year and to have so many different guests from so many different walks of life. Um, and it's been great to see how you all have engaged in these conversations as well from things that people have been saying on social media, from emails. Um, we're going to have more opportunities for some of that engagement coming up. So definitely stay tuned uh, and, and stay, um, stay informed because we, we look forward to having those engagements with you. So today I'm very honored to, I was saying beforehand, this is, this is a day one uh, thought partner in a lot of ways who's joining the podcast today, just with some of the initial events that we did around town hall conversations on different college campuses. And so I'm grateful to be able to welcome today's expert to be able to join us. And today we have Dr. Myra Mathis joining us for uh, the topic of conversation is going to be addressing addiction and thinking about faith, psychiatry, and neuroscience perspectives. So Myra, thank you so much for being here on the Addy Hour. You have ownership of this if you want. I feel like you have a, you have invested into this podcast, even if you didn't know it from, from early on. So appreciate you being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's so wonderful to be here and to see where the podcast has come from those initial conversations as you were planning and preparing episode 31. That's just, that's phenomenal. Thanks so much. I definitely appreciate that. And I know some of our listeners are already familiar with you because you served as a moderator for our New York event, God Mental Health and Wellness. Um, we also co-hosted a Grand Rounds at Yale where we had Lecrae come and speak to our community here. But of course, this audience has grown as well, and there are many who aren't familiar with you. So I'm going to go ahead and give you a brief introduction to introduce you to them. So Dr. Myra Mathis is a faculty member at the University of Rochester Medical Center. She actually trained in general and adult general adult and addiction psychiatry here at Yale. She currently provides substance use and mental health services at Strong Recovery, which is an outpatient dual diagnosis clinic. Dr. Mathis also serves as co-chair for the Opioid Response Network Black Communities Workgroup, where she helps promote effective utilization and dissemination of culturally responsive technical assistance for Black communities disproportionately affected by the overdose crisis. As a clinical educator, Dr. Mathis also facilitates educational experiences for medical students, for residents, and for fellows in addiction psychiatry, and she pursues her academic interests in advancing health equity and racial justice through scholarship and the development of collaborative community partnerships. So someone, as you can hear, who's deeply invested in education, deeply invested 
in the clinic and deeply invested in the community. And so we're honored to have Dr. Mathis here with us today. Thanks so much for that introduction. Of course. It's great to be here. Well, I'm excited to, to be able to jump straight into the conversation. I'm going to try and hold back and not reminisce too much on some of the <laughs> events that we've put together in the past, because there's always just been, um, I've just been a generous response from people who have been engaged in those conversations. And we'd be appreciative for the ways that you helped shape some of those conversations as well. Um, but as I mentioned to you, and as my listeners know, we always start out just doing a general check-in. So obviously there's a lot that continues to happen in our country. And just wanted to start and have you share with our listeners how you're doing um, at this point in time, especially with all the roles that you have. Well, thank you so much for the question. Um, yeah, it's it's a heavy time um, in our country, in various parts of the country, really over, all over the world. There are so many challenging, uh, tragic, um, horrific incidences of um, mass violence. And, and it's just a really heavy time. And now that I'm based in Rochester, New York, it's um, upstate, just 60 minutes away from Buffalo. So um, those things are still present with me as it is with so many of us and trying to figure out how to um, not just be overwhelmed by the grief and the trauma, um, but to be engaged in some form of action to, mm -hmm. to try and shift that so that it doesn't feel as hopeless and so that we don't feel as powerless. Um, so that's that's where I'm at. Mm. Well, I definitely appreciate that, that level of honesty. And, you know, as we've been talking to just that tension of trying to navigate as a society too, so that we're not just overwhelmed all the time. Um, yeah. But again, you know, of course, we don't want to ignore what's happening, but we don't want to be stuck in it as well. So I appreciate you just highlighting that and um, letting us know how you're navigating that as well. Um, as a follow-up and I guess somewhat related to what is your what does your day-to-day -day cadence look like in your position for those who might not be as familiar with what an addiction psychiatrist does, for instance, um, especially with everything else that's going on already too? So it really varies from day to day, but I'll give sort of um, the mix of activities. So I'm I'm seeing patients um, and I can see patients who have a primary substance use disorder. So um, some days I'm getting folks inducted on medications to treat their opioid use disorder or to help with cravings for cocaine use or nicotine use, things like that. Um, and I may go from that appointment to seeing someone who has um, both a combination of substance use and mental health concerns and talking to them about med medications to address one or both of those things. Um, I'm also working with residents who may be in the clinic rotating and they may see a patient and then we discuss the case and I give them some teaching points. Um, some days I'm doing a lecture. Uh, some days I am in administrative meetings. Actually, that's probably every day mm -hmm. <laughs> that I'm in some sort of administrative meeting, both related to clinical work, but also related to some of the, the health equity work that's really um, a passion for me and at the core of a lot of what I do. So um, the day varies, but uh, thinking about the patient and the systems that are treating our patients, that's sort of at the core of what I do. Mm -hmm. Well, I appreciate you sharing that as well. And I think that gives people, you know, a snapshot and a sense of, of some of those things. I think there's a lot of things there that we can unpack as well in terms of how people enter into the spaces where you are and how you're also entering in and trying to meet them um, where they are. 
But before we go there, I was wondering if you'd actually just take people through your path as well. Mm. How did you get to this place of going into addiction psychiatry? Is this something that you had an interest in early on? Is it something that came up a little bit later down the road? Like, what, what did that path look like for you? Yeah, so it's really interesting. Actually, I um, it wasn't something that I thought I would do from the beginning. And even my journey to psychiatry was somewhat circuitous. When I went to medical school, I didn't think that I'd become a psychiatrist. Uh, but my rotation in third year on psychiatry clerkship really opened my eyes to um, uh, the difference that could be made. Um, and also just the importance of... Um, uh, from a faith perspective, what's considered the ministry of presence, mm. what it means to actually just sit with people and be present with them when they're facing challenges. Um, and psychiatry creates an opportunity to sit with folks when they're facing various kinds of difficulties um, and to work collaboratively with them on how to move forward and take the next step. So um that's how I got hooked in psychiatry. And then a similar thing happened to me in residency while I was going through various rotations and I did my addiction psychiatry rotation. And um, I realized that we can actually help, um, that treatments work for addiction and that there is something that can be done. And when I'm meeting with someone, again, feeling um, overwhelmed by the symptoms of their substance use disorder, overwhelmed by the consequences of their substance use, um, that that we can work collaboratively to figure out what that next step will be for them. And um, seeing that there was something that could be done and that there was hope within the field of addiction, that really hooked me. And um, that's how I continued on this journey. Wow. That's really powerful and inspiring uh, just to hear about what, what pulled you in. And, and I, I sense that that continues to motivate you as you go forward too. But even as you just talked about, you know, the ministry of presence and all of that, I mean, it's, it's really powerful. And I can imagine that people are grateful for that approach as well. Um, you know, as you were talking about just the treatments that are there and that these things actually work, I'm also curious if people come into your office or into treatment with that mindset. Or if that's something that you feel like you have to instill, or if it's a mixture, um, yeah. and we'll get into you know some of the uh, stigmas and things like that as well. But as you were talking, that was just one question that, that came to mind. Yeah, it is a mixture, and it all depends on where someone is in in their recovery journey. Mm. Um, so I have patients who are coming in for the first time and don't really know what to expect, um, and you know we let them know what the options are and um, let them know what the evidence shows in terms of mm -hmm. some of the treatments that we have to offer and how effective they are and um, you know what they can expect out of the process. And then I have other patients who have been in various treatment programs, whether it's inpatient or outpatient, and they've done it so many times um, and they just feel like I've tried everything and I'm not sure where to go from here. Mm. Um, and that's a tough spot to be in. But I think it's also important as a clinician to hold that space of hope, mm. even when the patient is feeling like they're in a place that's hopeless. Mm. And so I'll sit with them. And in a similar way, I'll say, well, let's go through the options because there may be a combination of things that you haven't quite tried yet or you're in a different place in your life than you were in in the past. And so something might work now that didn't work before. Um, so really it exists along the spectrum. Some folks are 
well aware of the options and feel like, you know, I'm not sure what can really happen here. And other folks are coming in sort of brand new, trying to figure out how this journey will look for them. So just meeting people where they are and trying to maintain that space of hope um, while they have options to pursue their next steps. Mm, That's great. I mean, I appreciate hearing that you're meeting people where they are. And it sounds like you're also having a dialogue. So it's not you just disseminating information and saying, this is what has to happen, but really hearing as you said, meet them where they are and hearing what they're bringing into the conversation as well. I yeah. think that's helpful on a lot of fronts. Absolutely. There's there's no way that it can only be a one-sided conversation. I mean, if you just think about any, any doctor's appointment that you attend, if the doctor is the only person doing the talking, they, they're, they may suggest things that actually just don't fit and work for your lifestyle. The best medical advice that I've gotten myself is when my doctor is actually listening to me and hearing what my life is like and then adjusting the treatment recommendations based on things that might actually work for me. And I feel like that's the only way that we can really be successful Mm -hmm. um, in any medical treatment, but especially in the, in the space of mental health and substance use. Yeah. Yeah. That's so important. That actually reminds me of, you know, some of the comments that came up in the town hall that we had in New York, New York city. I remember Vicki Sigworth Mm -hmm. from the national Alliance on mental illness in New Haven, just talking about, you know, when people, and this was much broader, than addiction psychiatry, but then when people are going in to see um, anyone around mental health, whether the practitioners are saying, just telling them information or saying, tell me your story. Right. And it sounds like you're in that same mindset of what, what is your story? What have you been through? What have you walked through? Where are you right now? What have you tried? What have you not tried? And trying to find that balance to have that two-way conversation, which I think is so, so important on so many fronts. Um, and then even as we think, you know, even outside or not outside, but in addition to the psychiatry, you know, as I think about as a neuroscientist, I've had some of those same experiences as well. You know, if I'm talking about, for instance, in neuroscience of addiction, um, an event that I did at public library, that was really a two-way conversation. It wasn't just me there disseminating all the information, but it was helpful to hear from people what their experiences were, to see how that impacted, how they interpreted what I was saying, and to also have them share well, I was on this medication that made me feel this way. What are your, what you're saying about what happens in the brain is also helpful. So just kind of a back and forth dialogue where we are both able to learn from each other. Um, And I think everyone came away from that with a much better understanding, even though it wasn't a clinical setting per se. Um, But I feel like that's just important for us to do as a society so that we can have better understanding from both sides or all sides and really have a way to move forward. So it's really encouraging to hear. I love that you did that when it came to neuroscience. Like that is really, that's really exciting uh, because so often conversations related to whether it's mental health or substance use, um, it's even the neuroscience of it stays in a clinical space. Um, There isn't a lot of engagement in public spaces with the science of addiction or the science of mental health concerns. And um, so, so that's really impactful. And it sounds like it, it was also empowering for individuals who were there yeah. to have the science sort of presented to them in a way that's like digestible and yeah. that they can really appreciate and understand. Yeah, definitely. And it was a really important reminder for me as well. I mean, some, I think there were perspectives that were changed from people mm-hmm. who came in and also for me as well. Some people came in saying, I don't see the addiction as an illness mm-hmm. because I did this to myself. Yeah. Which I always say, of course, that's true at some level because you yeah. have to use beforehand initially if, if something is going to transition to that point. But I think at the same time, they also came away saying, okay, now I have a better understanding of what my use is, has done or is doing to my brain. 
in terms of long-term. And I also have a better understanding that that's not the end of the story. Yeah. There are different ways that yes, the brain has changed because of the exposure and use, but it can still continue to change. Our brain changes for all sorts of reasons and experiences that we go through. And there yeah. are ways that it can continue to change and they can move through it. So I think for me, it was helpful to see how they also process the information and then incorporate it into their understanding. And then I would say for me, bringing that back into the lab setting, even for us who are in the lab, I think it also gives people mm. perspective on That's why great. we do what we do, what mm. impact it has, and not just thinking about it within the specific lab environment as well. So I, mean, I think all the way around, those things are so important from a, from a teaching perspective. And obviously we're trying to make sure that we don't keep these conversations stuck in certain mm silos in certain venues. In a lot of ways, that's why I'm so grateful for the way that your work touches all of these different components. Even as you talked about at the beginning, the administrative roles, the teaching roles, the work in the clinic, you're doing a lot in the community. I think that's so important and so powerful. Thank you. I appreciate that. <sighs> it's it's important and it's uh, hopefully that feels gratifying because I know that when we're in the work in the moment, it doesn't always feel that way, at least for maybe, maybe more so for you in the clinic, but... <laughs> No, that's really interesting. So I, um, hearing you talk about how you can bring those experiences with the community back to the lab, mm -hmm. that um, that's really moving for me because I do think about, um, as you said, these silos and um, that research can feel so disconnected from sort of like the day-to-day -day sort of realities, whether it's of someone's life and their addiction, and even um, the challenges between what happens in a research world and what's happening in a clinical setting. Um, and that the communication across all of those settings is really, really important to keep keep patient experiences at the center, um, that our research is informed by those experiences so that it can help us do better clinical work. It's like yeah. we we need the research to inform what we're doing in the clinic so we can be more effective. Um, but again, if we're not really listening in terms of what the patient experience is, we may be focusing on a really interesting and novel sort of research finding, but how do we bring that back to the person who's like struggling and still trying to figure out their path and their way forward. So um, that that really um, mm. excites me mm. to see that those conversations and that engagement is happening across various sectors. Yeah, I, um, I, I am reminded of in that same way, um, even in sort of my day-to-day -day work, it's not something that I think about explicitly, but in this conversation, it's reminding me that often the challenges that I'm trying to work out in an administrative setting have to do with barriers that I've seen my patients face. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. that, I'm, that I'm realizing this is a wall we keep running into. And so how can we adjust our systems and our practices so that my patients aren't always running into this wall? Yeah. That's such an important perspective. I imagine you might have to remind yourself of that a few times as you go through just, yeah, because it's easy, so easy to lose sight of that. Yeah. I think as yeah. much as we can re remember that across the board and different things that we're doing, um, it's important. And I would say, you know, in some ways, it's still surprising to me. And I guess it shouldn't be, but sometimes it surprises to me the impact that things can have. So I definitely mm -hmm. agree as we're moving things need to move things on a system level, but even individually sometimes. Um, so I remember one talk I did when I was just talking about, again, the basic science in the lab 
and talking about some experiments that we're trying to, you know, do in rats or mice to try and model addiction or depression, which obviously you can't do all that easily, but trying to think about this back and forth translation and yeah. having feedback from people who said, as you described what was happening in a clinical situation, how you tried to model that and how you tried to go back and forth. It said, even that gave them insight into what they had seen their loved ones navigate mm. with substance use disorders. Wow. To me, that was surprising because I don't often think about it in that sense. Even though we're trying to model, I don't think about what are people actually going to get from mm. thinking about what we're saying about what happens in the brain and how an animal might behave that might give them insight and understanding into how their loved one might be acting in a certain way. Right. So that, right. that to me was really powerful. And I don't think yeah. that's a common experience that we think about if we're talking about the science, that it can actually have a direct application to how somebody thinks about Yes. How someone they know is responding and how to also approach that person. Yes. Having that understanding about, okay, well, this might be happening. This set of uh, pathways may be active in their brain this way, and that may be causing them to react in this way. And maybe I should enter into that in a different way. So to yes. me, that was just, that was just shocking because I didn't see it, even though you would hope that I would think about that, but. Yeah, well, so what you're describing and um, what excites me about that is really how, um, some and there are lots of folks in the field of addiction who have been really trying to push this message in terms of the science of addiction helping us to combat stigma mm. um because uh the behaviors of a person with a substance use disorder um are so hard to understand mm -hmm. right so you're just like you're talking about if you're discussing this moment with a family member who start to have an understanding why their their loved one uh, might respond in a certain way. And that in and of itself, because the behaviors are hard to understand, then they are stigmatized. Mm. And it's like the science of addiction can help us understand like what is actually driving some of those behaviors that we yeah. that other people find hard to understand. When we don't understand something, we make it an other in whatever way that is. It's different from us. It doesn't make sense. And so we distance ourselves from it. Um, but bringing that understanding in a very practical way, I think that helps. Um, it really does help us to combat the stigma and helps us to um, help families and individuals understand why um, certain changes are happening in the way someone engages with their world. Yeah. Yeah. That's really encouraging. Uh, mm -hmm. That Now it's my turn because I'm after remind myself of that too, <laughs> you know, just in the day to day, because it's so easy yeah. to lose sight of that. Yeah. To follow up on that, I mean, since you brought, I mean, appropriately this, this aspect of stigma and how the science can inform that, how do you approach that in your day to day, even though you know, there's a range of things that encompass your day to day, but how, how have you tried to navigate and help people move past the stigma so they can get to the place where they are coming to get the treatments that you have mentioned are effective? Yeah. It's really interesting. So I find that stigma, it acts on so many levels, um, especially when it comes to substance use. Um, there is um, there's an internalized stigma where um, you individuals wonder what whether or not they're worthy um, because they've been treated in a way that makes them feel as though they're not. Um, and that can happen at various stages of someone's recovery. Um, you know, someone who's um, been abstinent from substances for a, a period of time, um, but they're 
still working on rebuilding relationships that have been broken and for them to really know that they're worthy of healthy relationships Mm. to overcome an internalized stigma about what kind of life they uh, are worthy of having. Um, And again, it happens along the spectrum of recovery. Where I find stigma to be most challenging, though, is um, in the systems that are meant to serve our patients. Mm. Wow. And that is the part that is really, um, that's the part that could be really discouraging. Um, it's, it's definitely discouraging for patients when they try to access help. And then when they finally sort of, uh, when they finally make that decision and have the courage to make a choice towards treatment, um, and they're met by stigmatizing behaviors and language from care providers. Mm. That's the thing that um, really makes my job more difficult. Mm. And so I'm very careful in my language. Um, I model language even in the health record as I talk about patients and as I describe their behaviors. Um, I never use, I use person first language. I um, prefer things, uh, terms like abstinence rather than sort of uh, clean or dirty, right? Um, So these are some of the practical things that I implement in my daily work to combat that stigma and that I'm humanizing someone when I'm talking about them, even in, even in my, even in my clinical documentation that I want to make sure we see this individual as a whole person and not only as someone with an addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's where I find myself. That's the space I find myself in most often mm-hmm. um, modeling it trying to do some education with my my uh, colleagues and peers and co-workers uh, some of the some of the clinical research on on stigma demonstrates that uh, using stigmatizing language directly correlates to choosing more more punitive sort of responses to patients so it informs the way we decide to treat someone if we use stigmatizing language Um, And if we read stigmatizing language in the chart, it informs how we view that person and what we think they're worthy of in terms of their treatment. So it really is important how we talk about addiction, how we talk amongst uh, ourselves as clinical providers, and then what that looks like in a patient-facing way. Yeah. Wow, that's huge and so important. Where where do you think, and this might be speculative, where do you think that comes from in terms Mm -hmm. of within those settings, the fact that that stigmatizing language is still there. And maybe another question on top of that, do you think it's intentional or is it even, or is it something that's not even realized just the way that things have been done? That's interesting. Um, so this is, this would be speculative, but my, my thought is that we have systems and structures that actually stigmatize our patients, that that some of the stigma is written into policies in terms of the ways that we treat individuals with substance use disorder. Um, The the history of equating substance use with criminality in such a deep, deep way. Um, And 
that those policies and that uh, those media portrayals going back decades really inform how people think about someone with an addiction. And they do see them as sort of um, in the worst, in worst case scenarios as sort of a crazed criminal. And those uh, public sort of media portrayals, whether you're in a clinical setting or not, that's just in the water in society. And um, it takes change in multiple levels and sectors to really shift how we're perceiving patients and individuals with a substance use disorder in society overall. And then also what that looks like in medical settings. Um, there's thought of as the sort of difficult patient um, and because it may take more time to understand their behavior, right? Um, then again, even in a medical setting, walls are put up to say, that's the challenging patient, that's the difficult patient and conscious or unconscious, we have these responses. Yeah. And then like you mentioned, it has an impact on how things are perceived when it's written into the chart. And then to add on top of that, when you think about our black and brown communities, that's a whole nother level. So, I mean, what, what have you seen around that either from your observations or, I mean, from what's been some research as well, like how, how does that, how do those two, two things intersect in terms of the language that's used and people's background? Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, so uh, black patients, regardless of their diagnosis are more likely to be labeled aggressive mm. right, in, in medical documentation. Um, and so uh, when you add in components of, of substance use disorder, right, if someone is withdrawing from a substance, right, and that impacts their, their behavior, they're physically uncomfortable to the point that they feel like, you know, for, for some substances, the withdrawal feels like you're dying. Like you really, you just, you're in such discomfort that um, it is overwhelming, right? And so if someone, uh, if a black male comes into a medical setting mm -hmm. in that level of discomfort and he's yelling and saying, I need help right now, right? That, that, that that's not perceived as, oh, this is someone who, it doesn't engender these sort of uh, caregiving responses from the clinical staff, right? And we know what, how impl implicit bias works. Um, another aspect of this is how burnt out individuals in the healthcare system are, which means they're more likely to respond based on bias. Mm -hmm. So in the middle of an overdose crisis that's disproportionately affecting black communities and communities of color, right? We need caregiving spaces to be welcoming and affirming and safe for people to engage truly so that we can be saving lives. Mm -hmm. um, but black individuals coming into seeking care are less likely to receive medications for opioid use disorder, um, even in emergency room settings, which is a critical point of intervention when we're thinking about the overdose crisis. Yeah. Um, so, so the data is showing that the clinical behavior towards communities of color is different. 
in, in when it comes to addiction treatment. Um, and I think it's the interplay of stigma, racism, and racial bias. Those things in combination with one another um, really contribute to the difference in care that is offered or not offered. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even as I'm listening to you talking, I'm just thinking about all the impacts that has on the outcomes. Yes. And I'm thinking, I mean, it's giving me a level of empathy on both sides, both for the person who is walking through that, if they feel like they're dying, then also for those who may not be responding that to that in the appropriate manner because of biases or because of being burnt out. And again, I'm thinking about the neuroscience of that. And if both, both situations, both individuals are at a high level of stress, how that just can amplify things, but then it has such tremendous impacts on outcomes. And I'm even thinking, as you talked about in terms of overdose, I mean, that's a life or death ultimately situation potentially. Um, so again, I mean, just everything you brought up is just giving me time to pause and, and just realize how important all these different components are at all these different levels. And as you mentioned before, it's something that has to happen um, on a systems level as well. So lots to do, but again, I'm grateful for the ways that you're doing that in some ways. I think even this conversation we're having is giving us some insights about different areas where many of us can maybe intervene and be proactive and make sure that we have a better understanding um, of those types of things as well. But again, it makes me just grateful for for the work that you do and for the fact that you continue to do it as well. Cause I think it's a mixture. There's a lot of hope there, but it could also be easy to um, have some aspect of despair or is this actually making a bigger impact and a bigger difference, which I imagine can come into play as well. Um, but, I appreciate yeah, that. I was just gonna say when it comes to maintaining hope, mm. um, that also comes with my interactions with my patients. Mm -hmm. That's how I maintain hope. Mm, when when I see, when we have a moment and we're recognizing that things are working mm. and we get to celebrate that together. Yeah. Like that is just, that's powerful. I yeah. had one of those moments this week mm -hmm. and I was just, uh, I I'm going to, I want to share. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just thinking about the best way to do that. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, but, um, this is a particular patient that has alcohol use disorder and really, really struggling with alcohol use disorder, um, severe withdrawal, severe medical complications of alcohol use, including um, pancreatitis, requiring stays in the ICU for the withdrawal, just really, really um, very, very sick. Um, and We've, we had tried various medications to help in maintaining abstinence, but that, that wasn't really working. Mm. And so we started just talking through a plan of, well, what does it look like to cut down on your alcohol use mm -hmm. um, on your own with all of the engagement and various treatment resources coming to groups, doing, doing a little bit of AA, during just multiple different supports. Um, and... For the first time, a patient came into my office after not having had alcohol for a couple of days and there were no physical signs of withdrawal, oh. like blood pressure was normal. And and all of this came from sort of really harm reduction principles and slowly thinking about how this person wanted to decrease their alcohol use because medications just hadn't been working. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time that their body 
like actually was wow. showing wow. a physical response that the plan was working. So I just like, look, this is it in black and white. Mm-hmm. We're making progress. This is yeah. good. So um, made my week. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I mean, definitely the hope there, but definitely I'm sensing that, you know, the joy too comes from seeing that shift. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Celebrating it and celebrating you have to. And, and there are some who might look at that from the outside and they're thinking, well, but the person's not fully abstinent from alcohol. Right. And so, so what does that mean? Um, And here I am saying, no, we take every win. Yeah. And we celebrate every win. Yeah. And that is worth celebrating. Yeah, fully agreed. I yeah. appreciate you, you sharing that as well. Again, <laughs> that joy just just is so evident in yeah. a lot of ways, I think. Yeah, it's that's what sustains me. Those moments yeah. where um, I can celebrate with my patient mm-hmm. in the progress that they're making. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's so impactful. And so, and so many aspects of you, you know, being a conduit to give hope in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, just as to, to kind of wrap in the faith component as well, knowing that you're a person of faith, how does all of that, you know, as we talk about this topic of hope, how does all that intersect with all, maybe not all, maybe that's too many, but many of these things, it does intersect with all, but I don't know if you have time to go into all of that, but <laughs> with many of the topics that we've been talking about um, and in your, just your perspective in your day to day. Yeah. Um, you know, it does come back to that idea of the ministry of presence. I think that that um, um, being present with someone can't be, it's, you can't undersell that, the importance of that. Um, and like, and to really, really sit with someone and to let them know that they've been heard. Um, and the medical system can keep you busy seeing patients at a really rapid pace. And, um, you know, I do my best to minimize that in my schedule, uh, to as much as I can. And I'm grateful to work in a, in a space that allows me a measure of flexibility to be able to do that. Uh, Cause I recognize that that doesn't happen everywhere. And the need is so great that there are so many people that need to be seen. Um, and it can leave you just running from one room to the next, to the next, to the next. So I do my best to do a little bit of a self check-in before I go in a room with the patient to be sure that I can actually be present with them. Mm-hmm. And not just kind of go through a symptom checklist, but to really, really actually be able to hear them. Um, And I know that that really does come from what I've experienced in my walk with God. Mm -hmm. I, the importance of knowing um, that he never leaves and never forsakes you, Mm -hmm. like that he is present with you that that, um, I know how radically that transforms my daily outlook Mm. to know that he is with me. And um, I just feel if there is a way, um, and certainly I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about God in my clinical encounters, unless a patient brings that up to me, that that's a 
important part of their recovery. Mm -hmm. And for many patients, it is. Um, for some patients, it's not at all. I have a patient who happened to find me on Twitter and told me how he realized that I was a spiritual person and he's not really. Then we had a, <laughs> we had a, we had a you know a quick a good, little discussion about, yeah. <laughs> about that. But but it was um, uh, so just as an example of the yeah. ways in which you know I'm I'm mindful of those boundaries, mm-hmm. um, and at the same time, I do feel that it is um, an extension of God's grace to be present with someone else and to just, and to sit and hear and to hear without judgment and to let someone know that they've been understood. And um, I don't, I'm not able to do that every day and every visit because it's busy and it, that's hard. <laughs> um, but I try to take a moment to be mindful if I'm having a stressful day and I know it's going to be a little harder than usual to just be present with someone that I'm taking a few moments before I walk in that room. I am breathing. I am centering myself. I'm doing something so that I can offer that person um, the best, not only of my clinical knowledge, but uh, the best of a human connection mm. that I can offer. Um, and so much of the destruction of substance use is the isolation and the absence of connection. Wow. So I'm, I'm hoping that in a treatment space, they can at least feel that there's a connection. Yeah. Yeah. That's so insightful on, on so many levels, just the way that you're in, able to step into that space. Um, and, and it sounds like a, um, a giving back because you know what you've been given mm. as you talked about from that spiritual connection and knowing God's presence with you and how much more you can be a conduit to try and be that for others. I think is, and I, I'm just uh, imagining that those that you work with can definitely sense that mm. in your presence as well and how far that can go, especially with all the challenges that you just mentioned too. I mean, just to have a space where people can be willing to, as we talked about, share their story without fear of judgment and know that someone's there yeah. walking through that story with them, even though you might not be in it per se, but that you're there with them and how, how impactful that must be in people's lives. So, well, definitely appreciate the way you said that. And I anticipate that I would think that people who are listening can sense that in you as well. And they also give them just strength and courage to try and do that for others as hard as it can be, but even the way that you, you framed that, I think is very, real and very honest. And you also gave yourself grace in that too, because it's, it's not going to happen perfectly each time, but as much as you're, as you're striving through that. And I would add that God is helping you do that as well, I think is, is huge. Wow. Such an inspiration in so many ways. So wow, very definitely kind. appreciate just all that you continue to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and in your perspectives, I feel like there's, there's more to come, even as I know, you continue to step into new roles and to have um, different levels of, of impact. Uh, for me hearing that, that's very exciting. Just knowing your heart and the ways that you're touching lives and investing in lives. I can only imagine that those things will continue to move things forward for us as a society, even as it has ripple effects where you are in your clinical setting, but how that can also impact other places as well. And also what you do on a national level with different organizations. So thank you. Very- you're, you're in the right place. 
Oh, thank you. That is that is very kind and um very much appreciated. Yeah. Of course. Well, thank you so much for joining. I hope that our listeners have sensed everything that I've sensed as well, just in terms of your investment, your wisdom, your excellence. Um, I think I think just the field and your community is just fortunate to have you in this role. And we're fortunate to be able to benefit from that today on the Addy Hour. And I, I can't help it, but the Addy Hour listeners, you've benefited from Dr. Mathis in ways that you don't even know as she has <laughs> invested in this work and helped to set the foundation. So this has really been just an encouraging conversation. Um, it's always good to talk with you and to hear uh, what you're up to, what God is doing in your life and the ways that you're just having impact across the board. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. Um, it's nice to have a moment to like remember the joy. Yeah. <laughs> instead, of just, instead of just running from one yep. to the other, it's nice yep. to just have a moment to remember the joy. So thank you for that today. Of course, of course. <laughs>